Good morning. Good morning. That was so enthusiastic. Good morning. Awesome. I see we're awake today. Um, before we get going this morning, I have some announcements as per you. Hi. Sharon's here and Tony's here. That's so exciting. I might cry. I'm not going to cry. Okay. Um, um, it's so nice to have you both. Hi. <laughs> um, just a couple announcements. So today is the second Sunday of the month, which means we have our brunch together after church today. So please stay after, eat a meal with your church family. Um, we'd love to have you. It's in the gathering hall just down the hallway. Okay. Um, last week we mentioned that September 11th is our kickoff for the church. So it's our fall kickoff. Um, we have our kids' classes are starting again. Youth, um, youth classes are starting. So for anyone from the littles all the way up through 12th grade, um, a new adult discipleship class is starting called What Did the Disciples Do? Um, new members will be introduced, and then we're going to have a barbecue after church. So stay on September 11th. We're going to have an awesome barbecue. The community team has been working really hard. They've planned lots of fun things. Um, there's going to be some face painting. Um, there's a water balloon toss. There's cornhole, um, which is a tournament. So make a team. You can sign up. I see Walter and Nikki already looking at each other saying, are you on my team? Um, there is going to be a pie-eating contest. Uh, <laughs> um, so if you like pie, you can sign up for that. Um, so sign-ups for both the cornhole tournament and the pie-eating contest are at either the info booth or through the weekly email. So if you don't already, I literally just had it. Okay. If you don't already get the weekly email, you have a connection card in the front of your in the back of the seat in front of you um, that you can fill out and be on our email chain. And then you will get all these fun updates. Um, and then the last um, announcement that we have is that we just want to say, like, God is so good, and the work that's being done at 44 Wakeman is really incredible. I know we keep talking about it on the platform. Um, and we just want to say thank you again to um, Skip Gruffalo, a.k.a. my dad, and um, Paul Kamarji, a.k.a. my husband. <laughs> and um, we're just really thankful for how hard they've been working. And um, Skip, dad, has some volunteer opportunities um, available for people in the church. So if you would like to be part of what's going on at 44 Wakeman, you do not have to be a skilled carpenter or know how to work a saw or anything like that. There are plenty of things that we need help with that like anyone could do. And so there are several volunteer opportunities. There'll be um, each Saturday, those opportunities will be available. Um, they would like to know ahead of time if people are able to come on Saturday. So if you would like to volunteer Saturday to come and help at 44 Wakeman, you can sign up again at the info booth, um, or you can probably email Tara, Dan, my dad. You can email my dad. You can email Skip. <laughs> okay. Um, let me pray for us before we start, okay? God, thank you so much. Thank you so much that um, you are just in the midst of us, Lord. I thank you that your promise is that you are with us. Um, God, I thank you that you are here in the sanctuary this morning. Um, God, I thank you for this church family, and I pray that the time that we spend together this morning would just feel like family, like it'd feel like a family gathering um, coming before you and praising your name. 
Um, I pray that you would just accept our offering, Lord, that you would accept um, our songs of worship, our prayers of worship, Lord, um, and that we would just be moved by the words that you've given to Pastor Dan, that they would um, teach us and convict us, that we would leave this sanctuary changed, Lord. Um, we just thank you and praise you for who you are, and we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, you can stand with us, and we're going to sing. Peter 2, 21 to 25. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. We sang this song a couple weeks ago. I'm just going to remind you of the chorus quickly. Um, it goes, we surrender all to you. Do what you want to. Do what you want to. God, we love to see you move. Do what you want to. Do what you want to. And the, the melody goes like this. We surrender all to you. I think you got it.
we thank you that you are a good, good father. God, we thank you that we can trust you. Um, God, we just give you that trust this morning. We pray this all in your name. Amen. everyone. It is good to be with you all. That is some, you know, it is fun when we can worship the Lord, when we can laugh, when we can smile, when we can look around, when we can, can know that God invites us into a life of enjoyment and pleasure and, and, and acknowledging him and loving him. So uh, just a sense that, that God has gifted us this time and space together. And so I'm glad to see you here and glad to be with you all. This morning, as we uh, look at the God's Word together, we're going to tackle a topic that's tougher for some of us, tougher to talk about in uh, the day and age we're living in, but it's, it's one that I think is important for us to consider. It's, it's a topic that gets at the core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and it's the question of identity. Who are we, and, and who are we to become? Now, it may not be a direct misquote of Scripture, but it's certainly a misunderstanding of how God views our identity, right? The world we live in has one understanding of what our personal identity is and should be and how it should be formed, but that has a very different view and perspective than, uh, the, our world has a very different view and perspective than what God's Word has taught and what God longs for for His people, our world seems to believe that we can choose to be whoever we want to be and that this is okay, right? That, that, that this is somehow, though, different from what our faith teaches us, which is where we feel the dissonance in the world we're living in. That, that what our world says is how we should view who we're becoming is actually a different experience, a different feel from, from what God teaches us we should become and how we should become. The price that, uh, the, the, the difference our faith teaches is that we are not our own, right? That, that, that we, we don't have the freedom to choose to be whoever we want to be, but that we've actually, we, we, we're called to, to trust God for that. And the reason why is that he's bought us with a price. Scripture says that we've been bought with a price, and that price being the life death, and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus. The values of this world and the values of God's kingdom are vastly different in this area, which, which is what makes it dif difficult in our day and age to figure out what is right and good and, and, and how we're to view our growth and maturity and formation from the very core of our being, our, our, our soul formation, Right? It may seem like a, a harsh analysis, but what our world seems to hold most dear is our individual right to health and happiness. Songs celebrate values that, that put personal acceptance of, of whatever we like as a high priority. You may laugh, but a song written 
years ago by Sheryl Crow, If It Makes You Happy, It Can't Be That Bad. And at the time, you know, like, that's a fun song to sing, or it was. Not that I sang it or anything like that, but, you know, it, it, it's a fun song, right? If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. And, and it, it was subtle, but there's a, there's a worldview that's being cast before us that we're singing and joining in, and, and, and we're not necessarily paying attention to, right? And that worldview says that, you know, you can determine what's good and, and, and bad based on what, how it makes you feel. It leaves one to think that whatever makes them happy must be good for them and right, right? But, but my doctor wouldn't necessarily agree with me if I were to say, you know, bacon sandwiches make me feel good, and so I'm going to continue to eat those bacon sandwiches. See, the, the question is either bacon sandwiches are good for me or they're not. But whether it's defined as good or bad is dependent on a standard. And that standard is either found inside me or in someone or something outside of me. And the world we live in says that standard is found inside the individual person. So either we get the right, we each get the right to define right and wrong, good and bad, healthy and unhealthy for ourselves as our highest authority, or there is a higher authority outside of ourselves that we must look to and trust in to shape our identities as people created by God. A philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor describes the age that we're living in as the age of authenticity, where we're all striving to be our authentic self. I mean, these are things that come up, right? We, we all want to, to be who we were created to be. We want to live into that authentic self that we've been created for. I want to, to be who God created me to be, which is another way of saying I want to be my authentic self. On the surface, it doesn't seem like a bad thing to long to be our authentic self. But what this philosopher is saying is that the age of authenticity is an age in which we all have a unique way of being, and to successfully be your unique self, you have to do something. What you have to do is you must give expression to whatever is inside of you. To be your authentic self, you must obey what is inside of you and give expression to that to be your authentic self, regardless of what that is that's inside of you. This, becomes, this has become humanity's goal, to give the most fullest expression of what it, whatever is most true inside of you, whatever it is, right? In this worldview, no one can set boundaries on what it means to be healthy and good and to give a good expression of, of yourself because that standard of healthy and good is, is not somewhere outside of you, it's within you. No one can tell you whether that standard is right or wrong, because the highest authority that judges whether or not you're giving the fullest expression of your authentic self is you yourself, no one else, right? We see this worldview play out in mantras that celebrate the self, such as you only live once, right? It's this idea that that you have one life to live and, and you need to make that your priority. You only live once, so live it to the fullest, it's mantras like, I've got to live and speak my truth, where, where, where the purpose of life is living your own best life, your own truth. Even, even Shakespeare gets in on, on this, the action with, uh, when he wrote the, the play Hamlet. 
And he's got one of his characters who's giving this speech to his son, this kind of motivational speech as his son's about to head off to university. And he tells his son, to thine own self be true. So the very core of this issue, this whole struggle around identity, who am I, who am I supposed to become, and what am I, who am I becoming, at the core of this issue is the question, who does my soul belong to? Is my soul belong to me, or does it belong to God? Do you believe like the poet William Ernest Henley who wrote that, that you are the captain of your soul, you are the master of your fate? Or can we trust God to be captain of our souls? Can we trust him to be master of our fate and the author of our identities? Either it's my life and I live it the way that makes me happy or my life belongs to God and he's the artist and the author of the canvas that my life is being painted on. Either I am the orchestrator of my own story or I'm swept up into a bigger story, a bigger narrative where I'm called to live in accordance with that narrative as God has written it. And if my life belongs to God, can I believe in his nature as good and just and righteous? And that his, his plan for me is good, even when it doesn't seem so on the surface, when it seems challenging and difficult, and, and we have a hard time seeing the end of where this journey is headed. Can we trust God because of his character that he desires my good and that he's leading me where he desires to be my very best? See, what the question of identity boils down to is authority. Is God my authority, or, or am I my highest authority, my own highest authority? See, the world we're living in today tells us that, that we each can be our own authority on what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. But that's not what God has for us. So though it's not a direct misquote from Scripture, I hope we can draw into this passage we're about to look at and understand that there is a different narrative that the Bible is teaching us to pay attention to, just to consider and to ask ourselves, do we believe it, in contrast to the, the narrative that is, that is being offered to us in the world we're living in. And you may think that, that God's asking too much of us to submit ourselves to his reign and rule, to, to ask us to, to live in submission to him as king. But again, if this is you that feels that angst there, I want to ask you, what kind of king do you believe Jesus is? Do you believe he's a good king? Do you sing with us, God, you're a good, good father? Or do you question his goodness? Do you question that he truly desires your good and your best, his best for you? You may think that God's asking too much of us to submit ourselves to his reign and rule, but before you take such a confident stand in your own authority, consider what kind of authority God is. He's a God who, bared, who bore the burden of the, of the curse of this world's brokenness on himself to fix our relationship with him. He, he's a God who doesn't need us, but he chooses us. He's a God who doesn't hold a carrot out in front of us and say, you got to try harder, keep working. He, he's a God who instead makes our perfection possible by doing it himself, 
by shaping us in his own image and his own perfection. And he's a God who did it all by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. All he asks is that we trust him. That, that we trust him through the process. That we trust him as, his, as our authority, our highest authority. Even if it doesn't make sense to us in the present moment. Even when our circumstances are hard and difficult and painful. And we just want to make them go away. Can we trust that God is a good God who loves us and will lead us to green pastures beside quiet waters where he can restore our soul day by day. So this morning, as you think about your life, you think about what you faced up to today and where your life is headed, my my hope for us, for you, is that you're going to consider inviting God to speak and, and reveal his will for your life, not just in fullness so you know everything that's going to happen to you, but that you can learn to trust him day by day and learn to look to him to reveal his will to you day by day and trust him each step of the way as he accomplishes it. To help us get there, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, to a passage that is familiar to many people, but certainly not to all of us. It's Romans chapter 28. I'll read. It's a matter of three or four verses, three verses. Romans 8, 28, and I'm going to read to verse 30. Read along with me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... He also glorified. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, this is not just some wise teaching from a textbook, but this is the God of all creation, the God outside of time, speaking and revealing himself to us. Lord, we pray that these words would be words that we would not just try to analyze with our brains, but that we would learn to trust more fully with our whole selves. Thank you. May your spirit guide us through these next moments together in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I'd like us to notice from this passage about identity formation is that God is the primary actor in our formation. You are not. I am not. God is the primary actor in our formation. When, when we read Paul write that all things work together for our good, typically our attention is focused on thinking that all things work together for our good, right? We, folk, we love these words because it gives us hope in our circumstances. But what we don't necessarily pay attention to is who is making it happen. The language of the passage here is such that the actor accomplishing our good is God himself, Some translations even go so far as to highlight that by not writing all things work together for good, but God works all things together for our good. God calls. God conforms us. God justifies us. God glorifies us. In other words, God makes us mature and complete on the day when Christ returns and makes us in the image of his son. See, apart from God, everything is totally 
and completely dependent upon my own strength and abilities, right? Uh, If I say no to God, then who do I look to to help me grow? It's purely my own effort, my own strength, my own ability, my own wisdom, and I'll be the first to testify before you this morning that I don't have much of those things. Well, maybe wisdom, but not not the, (laughs) yeah. No, Janice goes, "Mm." thanks Janice. You get a raise. Apart from God, it's completely dependent upon us. Now take a moment. I'm not saying beat yourself up right here. Acknowledge those moments where you say, yeah, man, I worked hard and look how it turned out. But think about if you had a well of all the wisdom in your life, how, how, how full would that well be? If you had a well that described all the strength you had in your life, the energy to, to get things done, how many of us reach the end of our day and feel like we just want to collapse into our bed Right? Do you, do, you, do you have the strength to accomplish what we're talking about here, this formation in a character and identity that's good and right and just all the time? I, I think if we were to look at our own lives, we would say, we don't. And, and apart from God, our formation, our character, our identity is completely dependent upon us to be formed and molded into something that's good and right and just. Apart from God, everything's dependent upon ourselves. But with God, all things are possible, right? We, we have that passage from Philippians. With God, all things are possible. Apart from God, I've got to tame my own desires. Apart from God, I have to control my own temper. I have to force myself to be more patient. But with God, with God, he promises to do that work in me and in us. This is what Paul's saying in Philippians chapter 2 when he wrote to the Philippian church and told them, Therefore, my beloved, as you always have obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, how many of you have said, well, this is a perfect verse. It makes me think I've got to be more obedient. I've got to make myself more mature. I've got to do all these things. It's in my own strength, my own ability. But listen to verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who's doing the work in your identity formation and in your character formation. It's God who does that work. So trusting God with, his, with this authority in our lives is trusting that he has a plan, that he has a purpose, that, that he can accomplish it, right? See, it's God's desire and his design to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. To become like Jesus in his love for the Father. To to become like Jesus in his love for others. To become like Jesus in in imitating Jesus' servant heart. His sacrificial servant heart. To, To walk out the path of maturity where we're becoming more and more like Jesus. Not in the snap of our fingers, but day by day. This is the kind of growth and maturity plan where we really don't recognize how far we've come unless we do some evaluation, we do an inventory, right? You look back over the last three months of your life and you think, where have, where have I seen God growing me? You, you won't necessarily notice it in the moment, but if you look back over the period of time, you realize, man, God has really grown something in me that I never would have been able to accomplish on my own. And this is God's plan. He's, in Romans 8, that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. 
This is not some willy-nilly course correction or, or, or trying to you know, change our plans. God has planned all along to conform us to the image of his son. Not what we think is best, not, not what, what feels good inside me, but what God has determined is good and right. Back in the, the garden when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in his image. He, he created them in, in an image that he knew to be perfect and good. God loves us. So he's not going to create some incomplete, broken character and identity. He's going to create us, he did create us, in his image. But when sin was allowed to have its way in the lives of Adam and Eve, when, when they allowed Satan's words to take root in their life, to believe Satan's words rather than God's, well, they chose a path, a different path. They chose a path where they were becoming more about their own image, their own representation, rather than representing God's character and God's identity. This is where death and destruction and evil was allowed to enter the picture. But, but God's plan all along was to make us in his image. Your character, your identity, if there's any question as to who you're to become, if you have any question as to what God's will is for your life, it's right here. God desires not to make you into a certain, uh, to, to kind of build you into a certain job path or, or, or vocation. God wants to shape your character and image like his through his son Jesus. And this has been his plan all along. And so even though sin had entered the picture and destroyed this perfect image that God had created us in, he sends his son Jesus to fix it. We're taught in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's the rescue, right? There's the redemption. There's, there's where he adopts us back. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then get this. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. God's rescuer, the one that God sent to redeem us back from sin and wickedness and brokenness, is his own son who was created in the image of the invisible God. God overcame the destruction of sin. God brought us back. God delivers us from the domain of darkness, and as a result, he's making us in the image of his son, who's the image of the invisible God. See, this is what Paul has in mind when he says that God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, who is himself the image of the invisible God. Can you see the plan? Can you see what God has in mind for your identity, for my identity? It's God who works all things together for our good, and he's doing it by shaping our identity in the likeness of Christ. God calls us according to his purposes. God foreknew us. God predestined us to become conformed to the image of Jesus. This plan of God's to conform us to the image of Jesus is to conform us to what's good and right and, and, and unblemished by sin and wickedness. 
The word for uh, conform here in Greek is symorphous, which means similar in nature and in likeness. It's the same, in the same word category as mimeomai, which if you've ever worked with a mimeograph machine, should we do this? Should we say raise your hand if you've ever worked with a mimeograph machine? Yeah, there you go. Good. There's some, there's some pride in saying that. You should. It means you're, you've been seasoned by life because you've had to copy things in a harder way than just using a copy machine. A mimeograph machine, for those uh, newer to life, would be um, one of those machines that you kind of rotate, I believe if you rotate, like kind of almost like one of those bingo machines. Yeah, you kind of keep doing this, and it, it replicates the thing, the image that it's trying to, to, to kind of to print out before you, right? It's this replication of an image. God... Is, his plan is to, to replicate us in the image of his son, Jesus, whom he loves. Do you remember what, what God said over his son when Jesus came up out of the water at his baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine? I mean, go ahead and imagine God saying that over you now. Not because you're perfect and complete, but because God has, you've given him authority to shape you and mold you and conform you to the image of his son. God, God is the primary actor in our spiritual formation. I know we get uncomfortable when, when, when we feel like we're walking through a desert, when we're, we feel like we're having a hard time hearing God or things are hard and we feel like God is distant from us. I get it. I understand it, but I want you to know and believe that God is the primary actor in your spiritual formation. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is a God who is at work beyond your scope of of, of understanding. He is the one who loves us, who's well-pleased, not because of what we've done, but because By nature, he loves us. He created us, and he desires to form us in the image of his son, Jesus. So believe that God works on your behalf in the formation of your identity. That this is not some some path before you where you've got to figure it out. You've got to figure out who you're supposed to become. It's like a trial and error. uh, Does this feel good? Should I become like this or like that? This is not one of those situations. God knows you, loves you, and if you will trust him, he wants to be that primary actor in forming your soul and shaping you and leading you to maturity. We don't have to try harder, do more. We just have to learn to love him more, be with him. So believe that God works on your behalf in the formation of your identity. The second thing I want us to pay attention to this morning in, in Romans 8, and then I want us to believe is that God actually works all things together for our good. It it is a hard process to go through life and to grow and mature. There are things that those of us here in this room have faced that that are almost unspeakably difficult, insurmountable to think about going through ourselves. And yet the promise of God is that he can work all things together for our good. Maybe not in the moment. Well, I mean, he could if you want to, but, but his plan is not to in the moment. But our good is not our, our contentment, our joy in the moment. It's, it's this eternal joy 
in being with him for all eternity. And so believe that God works all things together for our good. Theodore Roosevelt once said, nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort and pain, difficulty. He says, I've never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. I have envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. So I think this is a, a beautiful truth that we can enjoy or, or appreciate this morning and that we need to hear. So I think when pain comes into our life, when circumstances that are otherwise horrible come into our life, we, we try to dull them or avoid them altogether. We're, we're quick to want to make the pain and discomfort just go away. We've gotten to a place in our world where we don't value trudging hard through difficult circumstances. We, we, want, we want the world to move faster, easier, more efficient. And to be honest, in some places this is good, right? I, I, think, I think of the example of Henry Ford inventing the, the production line, right? It was a good thing because it produced cars faster and more efficiently. But, but human identity is not the same thing as producing a car. Our, our growth and formation takes time. You think about your own life, the, the lessons you learned the most were ones that came to you in a season of life. It's a process. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8, 22 to 23. We, we're not going to have it on the screen, but... If you have your Bibles open, go ahead and look at it. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The illustration here is the pain of childbirth. <laughs> when we had Eliza, it wasn't that hard for me. I, I, I remember looking on the monitor and telling Tara, oh, you're going to have another contraction coming soon. I can see it, because like, you can see the, like, the, I don't know, the, uh, you know, the lines or whatever. It was pretty easy for me, right? Not for, not for Tara, though, right? So I, I can't necessarily tell you how this illustration works out. I will say it didn't look pleasant, and, and, and it took time. It didn't happen just like that. Not only do we know, from the moment we know she's about to have a child, that, that her that her body goes through all these different changes and things. Um, and I know we have kids in the room, so I won't go through all that. But the, the, the point is, it takes time. And it's not an easy process. But the outcome of that process is amazing. When you hold the child in your hands, when, when you look upon what happened, it's incredible. And, and this is not Paul's moment to make us think about having children. This is Paul's moment to say, this reality is true for us all in our spiritual formation. It doesn't happen like that. It doesn't mean we don't face difficult times or painful circumstances. It means that we do go through those things, but we trust God's outcome will be a beautiful time, a beautiful moment where we may be groaning inwardly, but that groaning inwardly is, is, is waiting eagerly for the fullness of our redemption, the maturity of our soul, the formation of our spirit in, in God's own image. So our character and formation is forged in the fires of trial. 
in Zechariah, in Peter, in the book of Isaiah, in Malachi, in Job, in Psalms, in the book of Proverbs, all of these books spend time focusing on the refining of our character likened to the refining of metal. You know how metal is refined? By melting it down in, temp- in heat that, that is like insanely hot and high temperatures. Does that sound pleasant to you? Not to me. I don't like even sitting out in the sun. I, don't, I, I get sunburned very easily. So heat to me is, is a horrible thing. But God's plan for our formation is for our good. Even in the midst of the heat and the, 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 the pain of, of being refined. In Jeremiah 18, God gives Jeremiah a vision of, of a potter. We read this in chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he, was, he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Spoiled clay, nothing can be done with it. It's bad. You can't, it's dry, it's brittle, it's, it's unworkable. You can't mold it and shape it and, and turn it into anything. It's spoiled. And yet, this potter is reworking this spoiled clay into something new, something beautiful, and something that seemed good to the potter to do. Do you trust that God looks at your life and, is, and wants to rework it in something that seems good and wonderful, and beautiful. See, what this vision reveals about God's character and man's is that God has the ability and the desire to take our spoiled and broken lives and rework them into another vessel. This is what happens when we surrender our whole lives to God in faith and let him have it all. Do you believe that? Do you think God just wants to spoil your life and take away the joy and the fun and, 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 and just, just kind of lead you through a more difficult process where he's got to focus in on all your failures? Or, or do you believe that those things may happen, but that's not what God desires to do. What he desires to do is to rework your life, your soul, into something good and beautiful. When we surrender our whole lives to God by faith and let him have it all, we're saying, God, rework my life. Rather than me telling God how things should go, I'm humbly surrendering to his will, trusting him to lead me through this season, through the the valley of the shadow of death, and, and, and to green pastures beside quiet waters. See, apart from God, this, this painful process doesn't make sense. It's pointless. Because there is no promise that it's going in a good direction. You hope it is. You hope that you've figured out what your identity needs to be. And you hope that it's going somewhere good. But there's no promise. Apart from God, this painful process of the refining metal or, or of, of, of a spoiled clay being reworked in the potter's hand does not make sense. Apart from God, we would say, I'm not supposed to be in pain. This is not supposed to hurt like this. I'm not supposed to be uncomfortable. I'm not supposed to be unhappy. So this can't be what I'm supposed to be doing right now. This isn't who I'm supposed to become, right? And so our response is to abandon our circumstances and to keep searching for something more and better. 
This is when we look across the way and we say, man, the grass looks awfully green over there. Why don't I go check it out? See, judging our identity formation based on our discomfort and our circumstances lacks the vision that God can do something beautiful with brokenness. When Paul says, all things work together for the good of those who love God, he's saying that God does not waste one moment or circumstance in our life. He may not be the cause of our pain and our anguish, but he can use it for our good if we would surrender ourselves to him like spoiled clay in the hands of a potter. See, with God, not one ounce of our pain or anguish is wasted. Many of you may know that um, one of the more difficult seasons of life and faith for me happened a few years back when my sister was diagnosed with a brain tumor and my daughter was born with some health issues in her heart. And you go through these moments of saying, God, how am I going to get through this? God, what are you doing? God, how can you let this happen? All these questions that naturally go through your mind and you're, you're, you're scared. Your loved one is going through something that you would never wish or want them to go through. And, and, and so you're, you, you sit there and... And you're kind of left, you feel like you're alone and, and, and kind of in the dark, right? Well, my dad around this time shared a quote with me from a British author named Alan Redpath that, that put it in perspective for me. Redpath said, there is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. He says, if it has come that far, it has come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. But as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift up my eyes to him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me. No circumstance will cause me to fret. For I shall rest in the victory of jo in the joy of what my Lord is. That is the rest of victory. In those moments of great pain and anguish, when we say, "Really, God, you work all things together for my good," is the promise that these things don't happen by chance. That that though God may not have caused this pain or this difficulty. I can trust him to use it. I can trust that he's allowed it to come to me with great purpose. That, that it may bless me with my own maturity, my own formation, my own trust in him, but also that of others around me. Since those days, my, my daughter's health has greatly improved. She's had some ups and downs, but, but she's in a great place right now. It's stabilized, but... And my sister's health has, has been miraculous. She, she had a grade four glioblastoma, which doctors say you will not survive from. But she just had an MRI scan last week, and there's no sign of the tumor. That's absolutely miraculous. But even more miraculous than that is God's faithfulness to me to my sister, to my daughter, to my family during that time. 
He's never left us nor abandoned us. When we receive bad news, he was there. When we receive good news, he is there. Regardless of our circumstances, God does the work. And God does not waste one ounce of our pain and our anguish. See, by faith, I now know, uh, I know now more than ever that God is faithful and trustworthy, that, that he's good, that he provides my every need. And, and I trust now more than ever that he is working in me to conform me to the image of Jesus. Church, God works all things together for our good. God is the author of our identities. I am not the author of my identity. He is. God is shaping us and molding us, not in whatever way we want, whatever feels good to us in that moment, but in the manner and likeness of what is best for us, as children of a loving, heavenly Father. Like a master potter, he's reworking the vessel of our souls as it seems good to him. And that takes time. A a potter doesn't just take some spoiled clay and throw it down on the wheel and it's good. He's got to massage it in his hand. He's got to work it over. He's got to break it up. He's got to breathe new life into into the, the, the clay. But let me be clear. This is a promise that is not to every human being. This promise that not only God will do the work and that God will work all things together for our good is a promise that's made only to those who love him. Not to those who prove their worth or show that they can earn it or show how wise they might be, but those but to those who love him through faith and trust him that he's a good God who will do as he has promised to do. So then, church, we're kind of left with this question about identity this morning, about what do we believe when it comes to personal identity and formation? Do we choose to believe, uh, as poet William Ernest Henley wrote, that, that you're, the captain of your, the, you're the captain of your soul, you're the, the master of your fate? If this is true, if this is what you believe, how, how has that been working for you? I'm not even saying that like tongue-in-cheek or, or um, you know, in a rude way. I'm asking you to, to spend some time. How has that been working for you? Has, are you satisfied? Are, are you confident that you truly are, in being the captain of your soul and the master of your fate, you, you're doing a good job with it? And you've got the strength and the wisdom and the ability to take it the whole distance. Or can you believe the words of Paul in his writing to the Philippian church in chapter 2? That God is the one who's working you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And if you do believe this is true, Paul goes on to say, do not lose heart when you face trials of various kinds. Instead, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't get upset when things are hard. Instead, remind yourself. Remind yourself that God is in control. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. God can make you blameless, innocent, 
whole, complete, just, and beautiful. He can make you to shine as lights in the world. So church, trust God is working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, which is your very best. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we are not eager to, uh, to, to, to shower judgment on our world and our culture, but Lord, we, we look at this passage this morning and we realize that it is an invitation for us personally to draw near to your word and to consider for ourselves what we believe about our identity. Is our identity what makes us happy? Is it, is it defined by what makes us happy? Or is our identity formed, not in realizing what makes us happy, but in walking through the process of being formed in the image of your son, Jesus, being transformed by you, God, having the joy and the freedom of knowing that it is possible, not because we have the ability, but because you are the one who's doing the work in us. You have the ability to make us whole and complete, blameless and innocent, mature, shining as lights in this world. So Lord, I ask you to have your way in us day by day. Form us in the image of your son as has been your plan from the very beginning. Thank you for your grace and your mercy upon us. Thank you for using every, every ounce of our lives, every moment that we've gone through, every moment we will go through, Lord, we, we trust ourselves and entrust ourselves to you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. stand with us and sing.
Church, as we close our service this morning, I'm going to pray in a moment, but I want to just pray a sense that Satan wants to discourage you as we leave here, that he wants to uh, make you believe in the shame that you feel from things in your past, that, that you think about yourself as spoiled clay, but that God can't do anything with it, and that you have to be embarrassed because of the, so, the, the spoiledness of your clay, and that's just not true. When we look at Jesus' ministry on this, on this earth, we see him walk up to people who are broken, and when society would step away from them because of their illnesses or their brokenness, out of fear of, of somehow getting sick themselves, Jesus draws near. He sees them in their brokenness and draws near to them. So this morning, we're going to have a time of fellowship afterwards, and I'd encourage you to, to share a conversation on the table about how you see God working in your life, but do not be ashamed of those pl- places in your life where you experience brokenness and shame. You are a child of God. You are safe in his arms. You are a part of his family, and nothing can take you uh, out of his hand and, 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 and make you be kind of like a leper that needs to separate himself or herself from the family of God. So do not let Satan whisper his lies in your ear that say you should be embarrassed of your past and you are not allowed to talk about it with others. Instead, the fellowship that we're invited into is to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, to share in one another's story and and, and encourage one another to draw closer to Jesus. So as I pray for this meal, I'm going to pray against Satan's work and pray for our encouragement that we would trust God and learn to trust one another with our stories. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for your word for these songs that help remind us of your promises and invite us to pray these promises along with one another. Lord, we love you. But more than anything, Lord, I I desire for your people to know your love for them. The the love that leads them not to be insecure or fearful, but to fully surrender themselves to your love. Lord, we pray against Satan's work in our souls and the formation of our identities in Christ, that you would not allow Satan to whisper lies and and untruths in our ear, to not allow Satan to discourage us from, from looking at our past and looking at our present and looking to our future with hope because we have entrusted ourselves to you, Jesus, to you, Father. So, Lord, Guard our hearts and minds against these untruths that Satan wants to lie, that we should lie lie in, in our ears, that we should be ashamed of our past. Instead, teach us to trust, to trust you, to depend upon you, to, to look to you as the author and perfecter of our soul. We long for your work in our lives. Have your way in us, even now as we prepare to enjoy this meal of fellowship. Bless this food and the fellowship we share around the table. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace and go enjoy the food together.